All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Levi Brennan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Redeemer Church. Um, It's good to see everybody here today. It's March. It's March 3rd. This is the time we need the church. I think March is the time we need the church more than any other time in the calendar year. It's a tough one, but we can, we can do this. We stick together. We worship together. Uh, it's good to see you here this morning. Really glad to be together. Uh, and thankful for Dana and the crew for leading worship, uh, worship and song this morning. If you're a guest here, um, you wouldn't know this, but I, I'm not the typical preacher on a Sunday morning. I, I'm usually part of the band helping lead worship here. So, uh, But every once in a while, I slide over to the pulpit and get a chance to preach. And so today is one of those days, essentially. So, um, But happy to do it and uh, looking forward to the topic in the, in, the, in the text today. Dana has already alluded to some of it by taking us to Revelation chapter 4. Um, and before we jump in, and it's going to be a, a, the sermon theme this morning is just going to be on worship. And so I'm excited to... Um, to dive in here together this morning. But let's pray, and then, and then we'll, we'll jump in, all right? Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful uh, for what you're doing in our lives, God. I'm so thankful for a, a church where we can come and we gather and we uh, sing of and exalt in and glorify the risen Son, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for an opportunity, God, to sing and to express that we get to come and express our adoration together as a church, Lord. And, and um, we just know from your word that you receive our praises. They don't just bounce off the walls and then disappear. You receive our praises, and you are pleased. And, so we, uh, and we're pleased, God, because we get to worship the living and true God. And so we praise you this morning, God. We ask that as we look at your word now, God, Lord, that you would help us to, um, to see new things, to be um, changed and moved, and uh, that we just grow in our love for you as we look at your word here this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, the normal evangelical Christian worship experience would have been that Sister Mary would have been playing the piano, or there would be an organ going, and there would be a conductor up front, and we would all turn in our hymnals to page so-and-so, and it'd be possible that a small choir would assemble on the stage, made up of whoever just wanted to be in the choir that morning, so so-and-so can come on up and be in the choir. It's your birthday. Let's just go ahead and celebrate that. And this was the common normal, very common worship experience all across churches all over the United States. And still is, perhaps, definitely in some cases, but after several rounds of worship wars between different people who wanted a different style, the guitar emerged victorious along with his friend the drummer and the bass player and the worship team and sort of the modern worship movement sort of eventually evolved, not without the piano, of course, still. But it has changed. It has changed over the course of 50 to 60 years. And some of you maybe saw that change up close and saw the pain of it and maybe even look back at those days and those are still the golden years of worship. If we could just get back to some hymnals and some pews and a piano. 
And, and, and it's okay if that's your preference. And I, I, I totally understand it. But the fact of the matter is worship evolves over time. Like the style of worship just kind of evolves as we change as a people, as our culture changes. And so now you have not so much maybe in this room, but churches with like a, mo- well, a modern sort of feel or worship team. Maybe lights. If you can have lights, you've got to have fog. And if you can have fog, you might as well throw some lasers in there. And you just kind of keep going with it. And uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of sound equipment. And it sounds and looks absolutely amazing. And you know what? That sort of stylistic change, honestly, I'm perfectly fine with it. Not all of it is my preference necessarily, but worship will continue to change from generation to generation. Styles will change. Our kids maybe will grow up someday and they worship with banging rocks together and hitting sticks. I don't know. I mean, it could really be anything. Styles just are somewhat unpredictable. And it's okay. But with all the change in worship, not everything should change in worship. Styles will come and go. But there are some essentials to what makes up Christian worship, what makes up our worship service when we gather together, and what makes up worship as a whole beyond even this place. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to, just the driving question is, what is the, from the text, from the Bible, what is the pattern of worship that is just unchanging? It does not change. It doesn't matter what the Sunday morning looks like. There's something that does not change. And so that's what we want to look at today, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 5 for that. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation 5. And before we jump into Revelation 5, I I actually do have to... I'm really thankful, Dana, I don't know if he knew this or not, but, but I do need to like, say some things about Revelation 4 as well. And so we've already read a little bit of the text from Revelation 4. It's perfect. So you already have that a little bit in your mind. But Revelation 4 and 5 are really meant to go together, but that sermon would be too long for me. So let me just summarize Revelation chapter 4, because Revelation 4 gives us the setting for which the drama of Revelation 5 then gets played out. So Revelation 4 is the setting... And what's going on there is you have, like, kind of like a movie. You know, the first maybe two minutes of a movie is kind of like the such and such happened and this happened and then the, it, it kind of inserts you into the flow of the story and into the flow of the movie. Revelation 4 is doing that. And in that, book, in that chapter, John receives a vision from God. It says he was taken in the Spirit through a doorway And past that doorway, he comes into this scene where he sees the throne room of God himself. And in that throne room, Dana mentioned, was God himself in his most sacred place. John describes him as this brilliant, colorful, amazing light on his throne. Jasper, carnelian, emerald, these stones he talks about. It's just meant to, to uh, signify the glory and the majesty of this, of this throne. He can't get too much more descriptive than that. But it's this glorious, colorful, bright light backed by these peals of thunder that come out from this throne. And surrounding that throne, 
he sees these 24 elders. These elders were likely angelic representatives, angelic beings that represented God's redeemed people. There's 24 of them, meaning 12 of them signifying Israel, led by the 12 tribes, 12 of them signifying the church, led by the 12 apostles, 24 elders all together, represented by these angelic beings all around the throne. And then closer into the throne, right near, right in front of the throne, it says, are these seven torches of fire. These seven torches of fire represent the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is there. God the Father is there. All of God's redeemed people are around him, represented by these beings, and then, or by these angelic beings. And then you have these four creatures. And some kind of description is given, but it's not complete. One of them has like the head of a, or looks a little bit like an, a lion. One's a little bit like an ox in some ways. One like a man. Another one looks like an eagle in flight. But it's not like anything you've seen before. Six wings, eyes all over. And all they're doing is worshiping God day in and day out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Constantly. And then the 24 elders, these angelic beings, fall down on their faces with their crowns and they, and they cast them toward the throne. And this is the scene that John is just looking, he's just writing this whole thing down. He just sees it and he's just, he's just recording it so we can get a sense of what he sees. This, this sacred place in heaven, this throne room of God himself. He got a chance to see it and now we get a chance to see it. And I think then moving into chapter 5 we see a pattern of worship that we can grab on and say, this is, worship should have these elements, these components to it, no matter what it looks like or no matter what kind of style it gets played out in. So that's it. We're looking for the pattern, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 5. And what we see initially in the first few verses is that worship compels us to admit our unworthiness. Worship compels us to admit our unworthiness. It's like this. As long as, as long as you think that you're somehow capable of getting your life in order or making sense of this world or being the judge of what's right and what's wrong, like you, you have that capacity or you're capable of cleansing your own conscience through, through some, some kind, you know, kindness or good deeds or things like that. If, you, if this is you, then, then it, you essentially, well, you, you actually kind of feel quite worthy in and of yourself. And there would be no compelling reason to worship God. Why would you worship God when you, you pretty much have figured out things for yourself? That's called being wise in your own eyes, and it's not a good description but it's a true description of all of us at one time in our lives. But genuine worship, worshiping God, it compels us to admit our unworthiness. We need a Savior, and we know that. We know that in worship. There's something inherent. So let's look at verse 1 here. Then I saw... John talking here. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, 
sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Just pause there. Why is this scroll so important? What's the big deal about this? Well, if we were going to read chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, what we would see is that this scroll contained all the final plans and judgments concerning the entire history of the world. It'll tell John who wins. It would tell us who wins, who loses, how it all works out, how it's all going to happen. It answers the big questions of life that maybe you discussed in some of your college classes. Is history going anywhere? Is there any final culmination of something? Is, does, does, what's the end game here? Are we accountable, really, to how we live our lives? Is it possible that Hitler and Billy Graham just go to the ground together regardless of how they live their lives? Is that really how it works? These are, these are deep questions that every person in some way either wrestles with or tries to ignore. But we do wonder, is there a final judgment? And if so, how's it all going to work out? And that scroll contained the answers to everything. Every event, every war, everything that ever happened, the fate of every person is connected to the contents of that scroll. So, when a mighty angel, which is great, I mean, it's not just your average super awesome angel, it's like this (laughs) mighty angel. I don't know what that is or who that is, but he says, evidently he's not worthy. Who is worthy? Well, and there's just silence. John weeps. He cries. Because he knows if that scroll is never read, then its contents will never be carried out. That's how scrolls work. A king writes something out and hands it off and you go carry it to the little village and then it gets read and then it gets enacted, right? Well, if the scroll is never read, it just sits there sealed up, then how's it going to ever happen? And for John, living at a time when the churches are persecuted the way that he has seen already, is experienced firsthand, this is devastating if no one's worthy to open that scroll. It means every church that has suffered persecution that he's seen, and the ones to come still, suffering for Jesus, crucified, set on fire, fed to wild animals just for entertainment. There's no hope for those people then. There's no sense. It's, it's a devastating verdict if nobody steps up who is worthy. And so he weeps. How do we endure as a church? How does this world endure if no one can step up and carry out the decrees of God? I do think it's really, really notable. It's amazing that when he says who is worthy, he's, he's addressing these, these sinless, powerful, amazing, beautiful creatures in the throne room that we've never seen. We've never even seen these things that God's created. And nobody steps up. Nobody raises their hand. And they don't because the scroll comes from the right hand of God himself. And it has his royal seal on it. Which means it can only be legitimately opened by whomever he authorizes to do so. 
So who is worthy in this throne room? And the, and the question just hangs there. And before we resolve that tension, I just want to reiterate that this sense of personal unworthiness is essential in our worship. We are not worthy. We get that. We fight with it. But, we, but, but in worship, we, when we're worshiping, we've, we've, come, we've reconciled that. Like, I am not the worthy one here. God is. So it's essential. Number two, worship must have Jesus at the center. It must have Jesus at the center. Revelation, pick it up in verse 5 here now. And one of the elders said to me, I almost, I almost envisioned this as a whisper, Hey, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are titles. These are titles that highlight the fact that God has been faithful to fulfill his promises. The Messiah has indeed come. Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11 both use those titles if you want to look those up later. But the point is that God is sovereign over all of history. He's had his hand in that entire Old Testament. All that crazy stuff that was going on. He's had his hand in that and he's never, ever, ever walked away from it. And he's kept his promises. And all those prophecies lead and climax to Jesus. Let's, let's read on. Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Notice, notice a few things here. First of all, just notice that the lamb does not walk into the scene. Where is the lamb? He is, he is between... And he's among. He's, he's, in, he's in between all these, all these angels and these creatures. In, in other words, he's already right in the middle. He's right in the center of this throne room. He's been there all along. John just didn't see him yet. He hadn't been introduced to the scene. But he is, he's already right in there. And that is significant. Jesus doesn't come from the outside to save the day. He's not like a created being who, who God sent and said, like the other prophets, go and do this thing. He, he's eternally God himself. There he sits on his throne with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. He's right in the middle. He's been there the whole time. He is our eternal God. And then the imagery also has changed now from a lion. You got a lion, and then you got a lamb, which are just super extreme differences, aren't they? That, that contrast is, is amazing. If you think of a, a, a lion for a minute, I got a picture of a lion here. Look at the, a lion is, everything about it is powerful, intimidating, it's unstoppable. It's an impressive creature. If you go to, the zoo, you, you always look at the lions through glass 
big thick glass, thankfully, or else from a distance and they got a fence or a cage or something like that. You never get very close to the lions. You go walk down a little bit further to the, to the farm animal section of the zoo, <laughs> and, and, you, and the fence is like this high, right? And there's big slats in between, and you, you can just pet the lambs. I mean, they're just right there. You can put a quarter in the machine and feed them if you want to. They're, they're gentle by nature. They're, they're, they're humble by nature. They're submissive. The contrast is that God... This is the way in which God actually triumphed over death and sin. He ransomed a people for himself as a lamb, not as a lion. Doesn't mean he's not a lion, but that's not the way he rescued us. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The lion overcame by becoming a lamb. And he did it in and amongst his own creation in such a way that many didn't even recognize him. There's no way Jesus of Nazareth can be anything. What good thing comes from Nazareth? (laughs) He's just a carpenter's son. And even to this day, when we hear the gospel story of, of God being crucified on a cross, that doesn't register. Everything about that is just wrong. Like, that's not how God wins. He doesn't die. He doesn't suffer. And yet, this vision says he absolutely, that does suffer. He did suffer, and that was the way he redeemed us. Um, in In our home, my boys, I have four boys, if you didn't know that. I got four boys, and um, the older ones who can draw, love to draw pictures. They started drawing pictures when they were like three years old. And I remember as a new dad getting pictures from my three-year-old that had a lot of scribbly marks on it. And I, and, I, and I would receive this picture and try to make sense of it. Now they draw very well, but initially it was like, huh, that's, tell me what this means. <laughs> and I learned, interestingly enough, that there, there was intentionality to every little scribble, every little line that goes from here to here. Oh, that line, Dad, that thing goes here, and it's a box, and the guy pulls the thing, and then it blows up, and then this guy over here. Like, it all, it's all connected somehow, so I, it took a while to explain, but that scribbly, beautiful little picture had intentionality to it. There was a purpose to everything there. And here, you've got this lamb with seven horns on it and seven eyeballs And that's not just a scribbly little side piece. Those horns represent honor and strength in the Bible. The horn is a symbol of honor or strength, and the number seven represents completeness or fullness. This is is pointing to the fact that this lamb that was slain is the all-powerful one. He has all authority. He has all power. The seven eyes... They just represent God's omniscience. He sees everything. He doesn't miss anything at all. Zechariah 4 says, 4 1 says, The eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. He sees and knows everything. This humble little lamb is worthy of our praises, and he's worthy to be 
right at the center of that throne, worshipped and adored as the Lamb who was slain and who was victorious. So in this moment, for John, this assures him, as well as the early churches and us and the global church now, that although we suffer to different degrees at different times in this life, in this world, Jesus has indeed conquered evil through death and through his resurrection. And his kingdom has indeed come, even though it can be difficult to see at times. He has conquered. And John, I think the tears, maybe still has tears, but I think they've changed in terms of where they're coming from. Well, what does that mean for us then? Here in our church, Christ Redeemer Church here in Woodbury, Minnesota this morning, I, I think quite simply and very importantly, it just means that we want to be a church that worships Jesus and we want to see Jesus glorified. We want to keep Jesus at the center of our worship in everything. It's amazing that this scene with all those, I've said it before, but the creatures that are all there, none of them speak up. None of them raise, raise a finger to say, I could try with that scroll once. Nobody says anything like that. So when we gather, as we exist as a church, we don't gather around a personality or a pastor or a, a style even. We just don't. We don't gather around to impress people that we made it to the church service even though it's 30 below zero. You know? we, don't, we don't gather to impress anybody around us. We're tempted to sometimes. We don't gather to seek a name for ourselves, hoping to be noticed or get the praise of man. We simply come to worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, eternally God. And if gathering to worship, or if gathering together on a Sunday is something other than that, like if there's some other motive out there, I can't guarantee in every case, but I think in most cases you just get jaded by the church because enough people disappoint you. And you're really there for some other reason anyway. And so you get a little jaded. You get a little angry. And in, in, in many cases, maybe just quit. You know, I'm going to quit the church. Not just a church, like the whole church. I'm just out of here. And I, I would suspect that somewhere in there, I think there can be legitimate reasons. And, I, and God is sovereign. And if someone walks away, it doesn't mean he's not done working there. His grace is, is just huge. It's matchless. So we don't know exactly what God is doing at all times, but, but, but I would be suspicious. I would think that maybe, maybe a person has left really because God's not the center of their worship and really isn't the big deal here. And so when we sing songs or we'll preach sermons or whatever, it's kind of, why are we doing this again? You know? why, why, are we doing, why are we just talking about Jesus again? There's other things to talk about. Jesus stays at the center. He's, he's the center of our worship. And we actually have to fight to do that. It can seem sort of like, well, obviously. Ah, no, don't say that. It, we become the center of our worship real fast. Our agendas, what we want to see done, being acknowledged by people, whatever. There's just an endless list of ways in which we can kind of nudge Jesus out of the center of that throne room and, and kind of sit there ourselves. And... Uh, I think this text, this picture, calls us to say, no, no, keep Jesus there. He's got to stay right at the center. 
Thirdly, looking at the last few verses here, worship is our response to who God is and to what he has done. Worship is our response to who God is and to what he has done. Let's read the rest of the chapter here. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. When I read this chapter, I feel... If you're into Lord of the Rings, you'll get this. I feel like Frodo Baggins, who finds himself in these great halls of other kingdoms. You know, hobbits are very simple people that live in the ground, and they're tiny. They sing songs, but they're all very humble and very much about their little farms and stuff. And they go to these great halls, and and at one point Frodo says, oh, we don't have songs for this, for these places. There's no song. And I feel that when I read this. I'm like, well, where, where, what can we say more about this than what we've already seen right there? It is, a, it is a beautiful scene of worship. And that is our response to who God is and what he's done. I think these verses, this worship, could be maybe divided in, or could be viewed as like maybe three concentric circles, the way you're looking at the picture or if you have maybe like a telephoto lens, you've, you've zoomed in on this throne, and then as the verses go, you're pulling that lens back, and you're seeing more and more of the picture as that lens gets pulled back. The first part, when you're zoomed in tight, you see those 24 elders before the Lamb with their harps, signifying just thanksgiving, and, and, and they're also kind of functioning in this priestly way by bringing the, our prayers, the prayers of the saints, yours and mine, to the throne room, right there before God. There they are worshiping. They're joined by these four living creatures. And in their praise, I love this, they point out that God has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's rescue mission has always been global. And he has fulfilled what he promised back, way back in Genesis chapter 12, when he tells Abraham that I will bless you and, all, and, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's church is global. It's multi-ethnic. It's multicultural. It's a fully racially reconciled 
church. It's always been his mission. It's always been that big. It was never just about Israel. There's a guy named Matthew Hall who pointed out, at reflecting on these verses, he said this concerning this being, God's church being a, a, res, a racially reconciled church. He says this, noting Revelation 5 here, that racial reconciliation, it's not fundamentally about us. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It is about Christ. It's for his It's for the glory of his name. So we care that that the church is a racially reconciled church. We fight for these things, not because we want to get our our name or a notch in our belt or anything like that. It is for his glory, that he is glorified. That's been his mission. And so we join him in that. We want to see that happen here, right here in Minnesota. So there's that first circle. We, we pull that lens back a little bit out to the next circle. And then you see, in, in addition to these elders and creatures, that there were hundreds of millions of angels all around this throne room. Hundreds, that's what myriads and myriads means. Hundreds of millions of angels. And if you're of a certain age and you hear Johnny Cash in your head right now singing The Man Comes Around, where he talks about 100 million angels singing, that's what he's talking about, this verse. A hundred million angels with a loud voice proclaiming together in unison, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. Can you imagine seeing and hearing this? Just to try to give us a little bit of perspective, the, the U.S. Bank Stadium, the new Viking Stadium, holds about 60,000 people. I think you got a picture of, of the seats on the inside. 60,000 people. I haven't been in there yet, but I heard it gets really loud. You know, if you're on the field and people start cheering, it gets really loud in there. Well, to hold 100 million people, it would take about 1,667 U.S. banks, roughly. 1,667 U.S. banks. That requires about 104 square miles. Well, Minneapolis alone, go to the next stadium picture there, Minneapolis alone is just 57 square miles. So, not big enough. Barely halfway, or just, yeah, just about halfway after you consider parking. And then, so St. Paul is 56, 56 square miles. So you take Minneapolis and St. Paul, add on the parking space, and you finally have enough room to build a stadium to fit 100 million people. I don't know if angels are the same size as people. We don't know that yet. That's a lot of space. That is a gigantic stadium. There's a roar of worship happening here. Hundreds. Of, that's just the first 100 million My goodness, do you see where this is going? Hundreds of millions of angels loudly proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb. And we don't have songs for places like this, do we? We don't, we're we're in a whole new realm at that point. Pull it back a little bit further, the lens. 
And you just see that all of creation now joins. All the creatures of heaven, all the creatures of the earth, in the sea. Every, everyone is pouring out praise to the Lamb. It's just an overwhelming, imaginably, uh, unimaginable, joyful chorus here of praise. That the Lamb is worthy. All that God has said will indeed come to pass because the Lamb has, is victorious. And there's just no, you don't, you don't get any sense of reservation in their worship here. I don't, I don't see someone mumbling at this point. I think everyone's like all in. We're singing, we're proclaiming this loudly. They're not hindered in any way from the highest ranking official angelic beings to the creatures of the sea. They're all joining together. And, what, and what's amazing, Dana mentioned this this morning, is that we actually get to participate in this scene. I mentioned the prayers already up there in verse 8. Our prayers are brought to the throne room. Like they're there. They don't just go nowhere. They go to God. It means that even when we come in here in March with big winter coats on and stomping with our boots and our voices are still frozen, you know, and we're trying to, trying to worship. <laughs> I don't know if I know this song real well, but I'm trying. There is, you're contributing to something so much bigger than just what's, right here, what's going on right here in this room. Our praises extend to God, and He receives them. And I, and I hope that this makes us a less self-conscious worshiping people. You know, like a little less worried about what people right here think when you're like, there's a massive angelic being worshiping God right now. I'm just going to go with Him. I'm going to just do what He's doing. He's a good role model for me. It should help us be a little less self-conscious. Be a little bit more freed up to just express our delight, whatever that looks like for you, but at least freed up. It should probably make us a little less critical and a little bit more joyful, I think. It should make us a little less familiar and way more awestruck by who God is and what He's done. This scene is meant to stir up awe in your soul. A picture is worth a thousand words was never more true than right here we have. Brennan Manning once said, wrote, a Philistine will stand before a Claude Monet painting and pick his nose. A person filled with wonder will stand there fighting back the tears. I think this scene is meant to fill us with wonder. Let it amaze you. Let it amaze me, us as a church. We're just part of something bigger when we gather. We're just part of something so much bigger. So that's the, that's the, that's the picture of Revelation chapter 5. And I just want to say a few words in addition to this, just because this isn't the only text on worship. I want to, be, I want to just supplement this a little bit here. Because if, if this was our only text on worship, then, then you would our only picture we have or instruction that we have you, you might walk away thinking that worship is, is really just about adoration in song. And it's huge. Adoration in song is huge. I think it's the climax of our weekly cycle of worship is when we come together and, and get to do this together. It's very important. But it's not like everything. Our worship continues, and we know that. Adoration and action are actually inseparable in our worship. We adore and we, and we live a certain way 
those things just, you can't tear those things apart. And we know that instinctively. Like how I live my life should somewhat be consistent with how I worship and what I say on Sunday morning. We know that instinctively, but it needs to be clarified. A guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a pastor who lived during the rise and the rule of Nazi Germany, um, he saw plenty of churches that would have done the adoration thing probably just fine every Sunday. Come together, adore God in Germany together, maybe even sing Martin Luther's hymns together, and then completely ignore the injustice toward their Jewish neighbors. And observing this, Bonhoeffer said, without action in the world, the adoration of God is empty and hypocritical and degenerates into irresponsible and godless quietism. Amen. That's true. That's true. Worship doesn't stop on Sunday, and we know that, but it needs to be said. It doesn't stop on Sunday. It's ceaseless for those who follow Christ. And I would just point to Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Presenting your bodies is your spiritual worship. You contribute to this throne room scene of worship as you worship, as you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And then, you know what Paul goes into right after that? Interestingly enough, right after he says this, he talks about not being proud, but using your spiritual gifts in the church. Use, use the gifts that God's given you to serve one another, to give of yourself to each other. It's, that's pretty cool. We're, if you're, if you're um, I guess, with us, you might not know it, but we're in the middle of a series on spiritual gifts right now, learning, learning more about the spiritual gifts, wanting to grow as a church in, in um, making space for our spiritual gifts to be used, and just, just helping us, helping one another learn Learn how to, how to use the gifts that God's given us. And here it is in Romans 12. And the connection is that using your spiritual gift is a way of worshiping God. So you're participating in this glorious scene of worship when you open up your home and you cook a meal and you welcome someone into your house Offer them a bed to sleep in if they needed a bed that night, or whatever it looks like, this idea of showing hospitality. It's not just getting the meal right. That's, that's really the, that's way too short-sighted. You're not seeing, you're part of this beautiful, powerful, awesome scene in heaven. Using your spiritual gifts is a way in which we worship God. Just bullet point a few other things that Paul says. I won't make comments about it. I just want you to see it. Paul goes on to flesh out after that using your spiritual gifts. Well, you also bless those who persecute you. You rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with people who are in low position. Don't take revenge on people, but trust the Lord to take care of you. Love one another with brotherly affection trying to outdo one another in showing honor. And this list could, it really can go on. I'm I just going to cut it there for time's sake. But it can go on and on. And all of those ways are, are ways in which we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Those are ways in which we contribute 
that were a part of this worship. Man, it's amazing. I mean, what a joy, what a privilege, what an honor to be counted as one of God's ransomed people for His glory, for His name. So let's worship Him. When we worship Him, we adore with all of our hearts as we gather on Sunday morning and we worship every single day through all sorts of actions. But keep that picture in your head when, when you are doing these things and when we're worshiping together. Keep that picture in your head. That's meant to inspire and stir up affection and awe and delight in God. So by God's grace, we will we'll do that. We'll keep growing. We'll keep worshiping. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we just humbly admit to you right now, God, that we are not the worthy ones, that you are, and that you're deserving of our loudest praises. You're deserving of every bit of energy we can muster up to honor and worship you. You are, um, you are our Savior. You are our God. You will carry out your purposes exactly the way that you have intended to. Nothing can stop that. You're also a lamb who gets real close to us, who won't, won't, won't hurt us, but is gentle and humble. It's just, an, it's just amazing that you are the God that you are. That, that's why you deserve the worship that we give you. you you're just, you're, you are, you're far more than anything we could ever really imagine and we'll never fully comprehend you. And so we just fall on our faces and say, worthy is the Lamb. You're worthy of our praises. I pray, God, that as we continue to worship as a church, Lord, as we continue to get together, God, as in the week or on Sunday mornings or whatever it looks like, Lord, would you please help us to grow in our worship? Not for us, Lord. I mean, it will increase our joy for sure as we grow, God. But we really just want you to be glorified. We want you to be lifted up and exalted. And we know that you're exalted as we worship. And so help us to do that, God. Help us to delight in you more than anything else. Help us to honor you, Lord. Help us to learn how to use our spiritual gifts, God, in this place and in this church. That you would be honored and delighted in that. You'd be lifted up and exalted. We just praise you, God. So thankful. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for ransoming us. And it's in Jesus' holy and awesome, powerful name we pray. Amen.